You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Mark chapter 7 is where we're going to be today. Mark chapter 7. So if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and uh, turn to that, that would really serve you to have that out and open on your lap. Mark chapter 7. And uh, just to start today, I'm going to, uh, to quote a couple of the verses out of what I think is probably the greatest hymn that has ever been written. Um, published back in 1779 uh, by a slave trader turned Christian turned pastor. Um, The hymn's called Amazing Grace, and it's essentially John Newton's spiritual autobiography set to a song. And so let me give you three or four of the verses out of this um, hymn, Amazing Grace. Here is verse number one. Pretty familiar. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Does it get much better than that? And here's verse two. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. He's talking about there how um, grace is needed. Amazing grace from God is needed for conversion. It, it, It is a prerequisite for us being in the family of God. But here's the next verse, verse three. And he is deeply aware that he does not just need uh, grace for his conversion, that he needs grace every moment of his Christian life. And listen to what he goes on to say in verse three. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Now, what brought him through all those? Here's his explanation. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. See, he is acutely aware of his daily need for grace, not just in terms of like the grace that brought him into the family of God, but his daily need for grace every moment of his life with God. And then um, I love the last verse, verse six, talking about heaven. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's a song that celebrates God's amazing grace to us, isn't it? That, that is the appeal to the song. That's why it has like been that hymn that has been so well known throughout Christian history is it celebrates God's amazing grace toward us. Now, if somebody were to ask me, um, what is your, if you had to boil it down to like one goal in preaching on a Sunday morning, week in, week out, what is that goal? Here is my goal. Here's, I think, the way I would say it. I am trying to week in, week out, present God's amazing grace and then pray like crazy that God will actually make it amazing to you. That's like the weekly job that I have is to present the good news of the gospel of grace and then pray that the spirit of God would come into this room and into your heart in this moment and make that grace absolutely amazing. Now, let me try to answer the question on why that is so important for grace to be amazing to you and to me and to us as a church family. Sinclair Ferguson in his book, By Grace Alone, How the Grace of God Amazes Me, answers the question, Why is it so important for grace to actually be amazing to you and me and us? Why is that? Here's what he says. This should be on the screen for you. He says, being amazed by God's grace is a sign of spiritual vitality. 
In other words, now just say on that for a second. Stop and think about that. If you want a way to like measure your spiritual vitality, your desires for God, your pursuit of God, how like your spiritual health is, if you want a way to test that, ask yourself the question, how amazed am I at grace? Is grace amazing to me or is it not? Like he's saying that that is a, 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 a test for you. He goes on. It is a litmus test of how firm and real is our grasp of the Christian gospel and how close is our walk with Jesus Christ. So if you want to know how firm your grasp of the gospel is, how close your walk with Jesus is, ask yourself the question, am I amazed at grace? He goes on. The growing Christian, so not just like for conversion, but the growing Christian finds that the grace of God astonishes and amazes him or her. Like that's, that's not just on the front end of like entering into the family of God. That's like the daily grind of following Jesus and doing life with Jesus. A healthy Christian is continually amazed at God's grace toward us. Uh, he, and then he goes on to say this. He, and this is why that is so important. A chief reason for the weakness of the Christian church in the West for the poverty of our witness and any lack of vitality in our worship, probably lies right here. We sing about amazing grace and speak of amazing grace, but far too often it has ceased to amaze us. Sadly, we might more truthfully sing of accustomed grace. We have lost the joy and energy that, an ex- that are experienced when grace seems truly amazing. So here is my goal today. I want to take the word amazing over here and take the word grace over there and reconnect them. I want us to have a, have a sense of God's grace is actually amazing. Now, let me just preface this. That is a painful journey. It's painful. Because to to see how amazing grace is, we have to see two fundamental things. Two fundamental things. One is our poverty. That is not fun talk. We have to see our poverty on one side, spiritual poverty, and on the other side, God's provision. And this passage in in Mark 7 is going to show us both. Our poverty on one side and God's provision on the next. So let's go, Mark 7. And let's just kind of run through the story here so we get kind of our bearings on what's happening. It starts with a huge request. So look at verse 24. Verse 24 of Mark 7 says this, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, he entered a house and, and did not want anyone to know. So Jesus is trying to fly under the radar. He's, he's trying to keep off the map here. So he has entered a house, kind of hopefully kind of slipping in the back. Hopefully nobody has seen him. Probably tried to get some R&R, maybe some intense discipleship for the disciples. That sort of a thing going on. But the paparazzi catches him. He can't get away from their cameras. They've caught him. And along with the paparazzi comes verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrio-Phoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now it's important that when you read the Bible, you read not just with a 21st century lens 
for the scriptures, but that you can actually develop like, how are people in the first century seeing this episode? And when the first century person, a Jewish person would have seen this thing go down, they would have been absolutely shocked at her request. Absolutely shocked by it. Now let me give you three strikes against this lady. Like why it is that they would be shocked by this request that, that she is making to Jesus. Here's the first reason they would be shocked. Number one, she's a woman. She's a she, and that would be shocking to them. They lived in a culture where women were not treated very well, and it would be uncommon for a woman to make this sort of a request of a Jewish rabbi. Here's the second problem, though. Not only is she a woman, she is a Gentile, and Gentiles were seen by Jewish people as unclean. They were the outsiders. They were the people over there that we don't associate with. And on top of that, not only is she a woman and a Gentile, she is from Tyre. Now, Josephus, he's a Jewish man who is an early church historian, said that the people of Tyre were Israel's bitterest enemy. They were like Al-Qaeda. They were were the people that you did not want anything to do with. They were the people that you did not like. This was Tyre to the people of Israel. So so here's what any person in Jewish culture would have seen in this moment. That this woman who is a Gentile from Tyre does not come into a house and approach a Jewish rabbi. She does not do that. It it even leads commentators to the point of saying that of all, like everything we've seen so far in the gospel of Mark with people approaching Jesus, this woman is the most unqualified and unlikely to actually do it. This is the situation. It's an absolutely shocking, absolutely shocking request that she is about to make here, that she she jumps in here begging for her daughter. And it's it's funny, it leads one... uh, um, one author to, to make a, a funny kind of quip here in light of this being a shocking request. She is, she is absolutely disregarding all the social norms. She does not, she is not supposed to do this, but she doesn't care. And I love what the author said. He said, there are cowards, there are the courageous, and then there's parents. And, and we all know that, right? If, if your son or daughter has something wrong, you're going to get help or die trying. And this is where this lady is. Her daughter has an issue. She is in a serious situation and she will bust through every norm to get her daughter help. This is, this is the, the situation. This is the request that she's making. Jesus, please help. My daughter is in a serious situation. Now, as shocking as the request is, even more shocking than that is Jesus' response. Now, you just take a little poll to yourself here. Out of what you've seen thus far in the Gospel of Mark, how would you anticipate Jesus is going to respond to her? She has come in. She is begging for help for her daughter who desperately needs it. How do you think Jesus is going to respond? When I read that, here's how I think he's going to respond. I think he's going to look at this lady and say, where is your daughter? Let's go do this right now. There's no time to waste. We've got to get this, we've got to get this problem solved right now. That's what I think he should do. In my mind, when I'm reading this, what I know about Jesus, that's going to be the response that he has. But that is not his response, is it? This is not how the story goes. It's even worse in uh, Matthew's account of this. In Matthew 15, same account here, uh, Matthew elaborates on it. And Matthew tells us that when she came in and began to beg Jesus, that Jesus was absolutely silent. He says, it's like she's not even there. He says nothing to her, totally ignores her. Now, we know just by nature of of seeing the story from this side that the silence of Jesus in that moment is not like a silence of indifference, but a silence of love. We know that. But if you're the woman in the story, you are thinking, what is going on here? Jesus, say something. And to make it worse, uh, in Matthew's account, he says that the disciples 
in response to her begging Jesus, they start begging Jesus. But their begging sounds a little bit different. They actually start begging Jesus to get this girl out of the house because she's driving them crazy. This is what this lady's dealing with in this moment. It's a shocking response. Not only is Jesus silent, but the disciples actually want her to get out of the house. They're annoyed by her. And then you get to verse 27 and Jesus drops his response. And it is a bombshell. Look at what Jesus says in response to her request. Verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, even more shocking than her request is that response. Does does that sound harsh to you? Maybe a little bit offensive? It should, because it is. Okay, again, just to make sure that we're seeing through first century eyes and not like 21st century eyes, we love our dogs, like we've got lap dogs, we got all that. No, this is first century, and, and that is not a compliment in any way, shape, or form. That there is nothing good about what he is saying right here. You know, it's uh, in, in the Bible, when, when you're talking about dogs, here are some of what dogs are associated with in the Bible. In Exodus 22, they are associated with being unclean. In 2 Samuel 16, 9, of worthless. In Matthew 7, 6, Jesus says, don't give uh, dogs what is holy. That is not a compliment. This is in no way, shape, or form a compliment in this moment. Philippians 3, 2, Paul kind of loops dogs in with a couple of categories. He says, watch out for the dogs, the the mutilators of the flesh, those who do evil. See, dogs is not the category you want to be in in the Bible here. In Revelation 22, uh, 15, the dogs are seen as those on the outskirts of town, and they are seen kind of in the same category with the sexually immoral, with the murderers, with the idolaters. I, I think maybe the biggest, like maybe the best equivalent in 21st century language would, would, rather than saying, you know, you dog, would be saying you rat. I mean, there's like nothing positive. When you, if somebody called you a rat, there is nothing positive in your mind in that moment. You know exactly what they're getting at, and it's not good. And this has led commentators to say that this, this verse right here, this, this passage, is one of the hardest sayings of Jesus in the New Testament. So let me try to kind of unpack some of what's going on here. And let me do it from two angles. I think there's two ways that you could describe some of what's happening in this passage. And the first way you might could explain it is by talking about it in terms of race, an issue of race. It's an issue of the Jew-Gentile distinction. So let me point out four words that help kind of give the substance of how you could see it in terms of race. The first word in verse 27 is the word children. See that word in verse 27? Now, the point of the word children is that children have privileges and priorities that other people in your life don't, right? Think about this in terms of if you've got sons and daughters, they have privileges and promises that other people in your life do not have. And this is part of what Jesus is communicating here. You know, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were repeatedly called the children of God. Like God is a father to them. They are children of God. This is how they are seen in the Old Testament. So in this scenario, Jesus, in saying the word children, is saying these are the people of Israel. This this is who they are. They're children. So you've got children. Then you've got the word dogs. Do you see the word dog there? Verse 27. He's saying, here are the children. Here are the dogs. Now, When we think about dogs, it's an issue of priority. That children have rights and privileges right now that dogs don't have. Amen? Now, if you can't amen that, you've got problems. We've got counselors on standby for you. (laughs) And let me just throw this out. Like, here's a privilege that a kid has that a dog doesn't. 
Kids get to wear clothes. Dogs should not be wearing clothes. And if you've got a problem with that, email Travis at stonegate-church.com. He'd love to talk to you about that. Feel free. Right? But, but children have privileges and rights that dogs don't have. And this is what he's saying. Now, the Jewish people were notorious for calling Gentiles dogs. So if children equal the people of Israel in this text, Gentiles would be the dogs in this passage. So that's the second word. Then you've got the word bread. You've got this banquet, this bread on the table. And bread would be a way of communicating the blessing of God, namely in Jesus, of how God has provided for his people, blessed his people in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is why later on in chapter, uh, I think it's 14, Jesus is going to hold up a piece of bread and he's going to say, this bread is my body broken for you. So, so bread would signify this blessing of God, namely in Jesus, as a provision for, the people, uh, for his people. And then you've got this word first. And Jesus is saying, tying all that together, Jesus is saying, here's what I'm telling you here in terms of race in this passage. That I have come primarily first to the people of, of Israel, to, to my children. I've come to them first and I'm bringing this gospel of grace to them first. And then secondly, it's going to break out of the people of Israel and it's going to go to the ends of the earth. Like this is what um, Paul says in Romans 1.16. Remember this passage? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for anyone who believes, right? And then he says this, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, then to the Greek. So, so it's Jew first, then, then Gentile. Jesus is saying, listen, my, my primary ministry in the three years I'm about to live here, my primary ministry is to the Jewish people. And then we see like, this is the same thing that happens in Acts 1. Jesus' primary ministry is to the Jewish people. And then he says in Acts 1, now it's time for the gospel of grace to break out. Now you go to Judea and Samaria and you take the gospel of grace to the ends of the earth. See, it's, he's saying that priority is Jew first and then Gentile. First, my three years, we're going to live here and do it in, among the Jewish people. And then grace is going to bust out everywhere. So that's one way of looking at what Jesus is saying here. That it's an issue of race, Jew, Gentile, that relationship of how, how the gospel of grace intersects with both of those two people. But there's a second way to look at it. And this is the one I want to emphasize today. Not just in terms of race, but I want you to see it in terms of theology. That Jesus is saying something personally to this lady, not just generally to Jew and Gentile. Jesus is looking at this lady and he is telling her and teaching her theology that she needs to know, namely, that she, in light of God's perfect standards of righteousness, in light of God's law, she really is a dog. That's what she really is. Maybe you can think of it this way, that Jesus is saying in this moment, that listen, you are defiled. Going back to, to what we talked about last week in the first half of Matthew 7, when Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, listen, Pharisees, you've got, a, you, you've got all of this mixed up. You really think your deepest problem is your behavior. Your deepest problem is not your behavior. Your deepest problem is a defiled heart. You've got a heart issue. And that defiled heart is a problem. It leads to all of these, these surface level behaviors up here that you hate, like adultery and immorality and all these things. But the problem is your defiled heart. And Jesus is saying in this passage, Listen, lady, you have got a defiled heart and that defiled heart makes you unfit for my table. It makes you unfit for this relationship around this table. It makes you unfit to get inside the family of God. It makes you unfit to have a relationship with God. The truth is, lady, you are a dog, spiritually speaking. This is what you are. You are unfit for the table. Your rebellious heart has put you outside of a relationship with God. See, what Jesus is getting at here with this lady is there really is a theological problem that you have with God, namely that you are in, in, 
light of God's perfect standard, a dog unfit for the table. Now, we're to verse 28. And this is, where, this is what we need to see is verse 28. In verse 28, we are about to watch her response to Jesus' response. And her response to Jesus' response is even more shocking than Jesus' response. And we are about to see in her response in verse 28 two fundamental things. If we are going to become a Christian, like if you're in the room and you want to become a Christian, if you're going to become a Christian, these are the two fundamental things that you have to see about yourself and the world. And if you're in the room and you want to grow as a Christian, you want to be fruitful as a Christian, it's two fundamental things you have to see. So if you want to become a Christian or if you are a Christian, these are the two fundamental things that we have got to see clearly. And they're both in verse 28. Here's her response back to Jesus. Verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now that's a remarkable statement. Here is what's happening in this minute. This is like fundamental number one. If you want to become a Christian or like grow and live fruitfully as a Christian, you've got to see what she saw right here. Namely, she saw her poverty before God. She saw it. Jesus had just looked at her and said, listen, here's your problem. Spiritually speaking, you're a dog. You are unfit for the table. In light of my standards, you are defiled. You are outside of a relationship with me. A relationship with God is impossible in light of your rebellion. It's impossible. You are that bad. Your sin is that deep. It is that dangerous. It is that huge. It's that big of a problem that you are cut off from the table of God. And look at what she says. I know it is that bad. She doesn't deny it. She doesn't run from it. She looks back at Jesus who just called her a dog and said, you're exactly right. That's what I am. That's exactly right. She saw her own spiritual poverty before God. Now, can we just ask a question? Have you seen that? Are you deeply aware of that? That apart from Jesus, this is what we are. Dogs, spiritually speaking, morally bankrupt. Spiritually speaking, we are in poverty before God. This is what Jesus is communicating to her, and this is what she saw. Now, in Romans chapter 3, you might want to flip there if you, if you like. Romans chapter 3, just a couple of books forward in the Bible there. It's going to also be up on the screen for you. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is concluding the first three chapters of Romans. He's concluding this section And here's the purpose of the section, to try to convince us of just how wicked we are before God. He's trying to convince us that in and of ourselves we have no righteousness, no resume that we can present to God as if we're going to earn his grace. He's trying to convince us of that. He's showing us in vivid detail, with vivid language, that apart from Jesus, we have no righteousness. That our problem, the universal problem of the human race is that we need righteousness, that we don't have it. And look at how he describes it. If you want to think about what happens in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9, is is Paul is taking what Jesus said in Mark 7, you're a dog. And he's putting detailed language to describe what that means, what that is. So, So in Mark 7, it's kind of our depravity and our wickedness in story form. 
But in Romans 3, Paul puts it in prose. He is like pulling no punches as he describes in detail what it means to be in poverty before God. And and this is how he describes it. Romans 3, starting in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, that all, both Jews and Greeks, that all of us, we are, and here's a key phrase, under sin. We are under sin. Like, like Jesus calls it a dog and Paul is calling it under sin. And then he goes on to describe what it means to be under sin. Look at verse 10. As it is written, here's what it means to be under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you see the sort of inclusive language he's using here? It's not saying that, you know, the worst of you is like this. He's saying that, no, all of you are this. Every one of you. It's a universal reality. That none of you are seeking after God. Not one of you. He uses the word, you've all become worthless. In other words, dogs. You've all become that. This is what you are before God. You have no, you have no righteousness of your own before God. He's saying this is, this is what it means to be under sin. This is what it means to be a dog. This is what it means to be in spiritual poverty. He goes on in verse 13. Now, I want you to see, as we read 13 and beyond here, that this is not just like a them out there thing. This is an us in here thing. This is like a you and me thing. This isn't just for the worst of the people out there. This is for you and I. Look at verse 13. He says, their throat is an open grave. Now, just to personalize that, rather than saying their, let's say our. Our throat is an open grave. Rather than saying they, let's say, let's use the word we. We use our tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under our lips. Our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Not just those people, but us. Saying this is your spiritual poverty. Verse 15. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Verse 16. In our paths are ruin and misery. Verse 17. And the way of peace we have not known. Verse 18. There is no fear of God before our eyes. He's saying, listen, this is your problem. This is your issue before God right here. Your issue. This is a picture of your spiritual poverty. And then look at verse 19. He goes on to say this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul is saying that there's going to be a day when you stand before God and the rap sheet of your life is going to come out. And you know what that rap sheet's going to have on it? Romans 3. This is going to be your rap sheet before God. This is what's going to be on it. Paul is saying, listen, when you stand before God in that moment, listen to how you're going to be standing in spiritual bankruptcy, in poverty. You will have nothing of your own accord that you can look at and say, God, because of this, I'm good. Because of this thing that I've done, now we're okay. No, it's nothing he's saying. There is nothing in you that is righteous. And then just to put a whole bow on that, skip down to verse 23. He's saying, this is your rap sheet. And before God, every mouth is going to stop. It will be indefensible. There will be like, but there's not going to be anyone that says, but God, you don't know what I did over there. No, it's not any of that. The mouth will be stopped, he says. And then the bow comes on in verse 23. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short. This is what Paul's trying to convince us of, that we are in spiritual poverty before God. And you know what's amazing? When Jesus is convincing this lady of that, she doesn't like shake her fist back at Jesus. She doesn't run out of the house. She looks back at Jesus and says, I know that's exactly what I am. That's it. I have fallen short of the glory of God. I mean, I'm not denying that. I am admitting that. That is what I am. So, so the question is, have you ever had that moment? And, and let's just chat about this for just a second because now I know that in our culture, talk about sin, like when a pastor actually tries to do biblical justice to what the Bible convinces us of as far as our spiritual poverty before God, that we have no righteousness of our own, that that is really tough for a lot of like 21st century modern day Americans to stomach. I know that. And, and in light of that, I know that there's two primary ditches that we have a tendency to fall into when we hear talk about sin and our spiritual poverty before God. There's two primary ditches. And let me just work through the two ditches that I think we fall into. That even now in this moment, people are falling into in this room. Two ditches. Here's ditch number one. We, we hear Paul say something like, this is, your, this is what you've done, falling short of the glory of God. This is, your, this is your rap sheet and resume before God. Right? And we hear Jesus say stuff like, this is what you are in light of God's standards, dogs. When we hear that, here's the two ditches. Here's ditch one. Ditch one is what we might call prideful arrogance. It's that, you know that little inner defense lawyer that lives inside of you? That like when somebody tries to point something out in you that's wrong, kind of swells up in you, and you kind of hold up your fist and say, really? Do you really know who I am? How dare you say that about me? You don't know me. It's that, that inner lawyer. This is that prideful arrogance. When we look back at God and, and a lot of what God has said about us, dogs, this is your spiritual rap sheet, Romans 3. It's that look back at God that says, you don't know me, God. You, you don't really know me like I know me. I am not that. That is not who I am. If you want to picture this in the Bible, it's the Pharisees, right? So like the classic example of this is when Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who both went down to the temple to pray. Do you remember what the Pharisee's prayer sounded like? He got into the temple and he began to pray to God. And here's what he said. God, thank you that I'm not like these scumbags over here. Th thank God that I'm not like that adulterer, like that evildoer, or even like this tax collector over here. Thank God I'm not like them. And then he goes on to say this. But God, th thankfully, I'm like this. I fast a couple of times a week. I give when I'm supposed to give. Well, I'm doing all the right things. See, this was the problem with the tax collectors, or the Pharisees. Every time Jesus tried to convince them of their wickedness before God, they could not understand it. They would respond in prideful arrogance. God, you don't know the real me. You don't know all that I'm doing. You don't know how good my little spiritual resume over here is. See, the Pharisees could not get it into their mind that when it comes to like our condition before God in the Bible, that there are no good people. There's only one good person in the Bible. His name is Jesus. The rest of us are all in the category of bad, all in the category of spiritually impoverished, all in the category of spiritually bankrupt before God. So, so in one response, one ditch we fall into when we hear about our condition before God is we fall into the prideful arrogance. That's not who I am. We shake our fist at God. But here is another response. Here's the other ditch that we fall into. And it's not prideful arrogance. We might call this one prideful self-loathing. Prideful self-loathing. And just to, to reiterate this, both of them are prideful. 
Like both of these two responses are rooted in self-righteousness. We're trying to relate to God based on our performance for God. So it's prideful self-loathing. So we hear God's verdict. We hear that we are spiritually bankrupt. We hear that like what Jesus said, that we are dogs in light of his perfect standard of righteousness. And rather than being like the spiritual pride, rather than shaking our fist at God, we say, I know, and then we're absolutely depressed. We're self-loathing. We're kicking ourselves down the street. We, we develop the posture of, I guess we should just like, I guess we should just kind of go around moping around, woe is me, so, you know, I feel sorry for me, let's throw a pity party for me. It's that sort of self-loathing that we hear that, that what we are before God, and it's not, we're not responding in a way that's saying, we know we're not, and that's not what we are. We're saying, yes, I know that, but it's, it's producing like this depression. It's crushing us. The weight of our sin absolutely destroys us, pulverizes us. Now, I want you to notice, look again at verse 28, that she does not fall into either of those ditches. She does not fall into prideful arrogance or prideful self-loathing. Look at her response again in verse 28. But she answered and said, yes, Lord. That's exactly who I am. But then she goes on to say this, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. I love this. She's not easily offended, is she? She's not. She, she looks at Jesus and says, yes, that's exactly what I am. She, there's no like denial of that. There's no prideful arrogance. She admits, that is what I am. I am a dog. You are exactly right. And notice this. She doesn't go like down in the dumps in depression. She doesn't do that. Why? She recognizes her poverty on one side. She sees that she is spiritually impoverished on one hand. But then she also sees something else. She sees God's gracious provision for her poverty. She sees it both. And that's what keeps her out of the ditch of self-loathing. So she recognizes, she says to God, yes, that is what I am. I am the dog. I know that I am unfit for the table. I know that. But then she looks up to God and says, but I know there is grace on the table for even me. I know that there is grace enough on that table that just if a few crumbs spill off, it will cover me. I know that there is a banquet of grace up there that is big enough and large enough to cover even my sin, my wickedness, my rebellion. I know that this is what I am, but I know your grace is bigger. This is what's happening here. She not only sees her spiritual poverty, she sees God's provision for her poverty. And welcome to the good news of the gospel, right? The gospel first comes in and sobers us. This is what you are, dog, Romans 3. This is your rapture. This is what you are before God. There is no righteousness of your own before God. And here comes the great satisfying news of the gospel. Sobers us first. This is what you are. And then it satisfies us. This is God's provision for what you are. You're spiritually in poverty. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. But God made him who is rich become poor in poverty so that we who were in poverty could become rich. That, that's God meeting us in our poverty. It, it's 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we are spiritually bankrupt people, but God in his infinite mercy made him who knew no sin, Jesus, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us 2 Corinthians 5, 21, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That the God takes his son, Jesus, who has no sin on him. 
He has a perfect record of righteousness. And, and God takes all of our spiritual poverty and puts all of our poverty onto Jesus. And then God takes all of Jesus' spiritual wealth, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection from the dead, takes all of his spiritual wealth and credits that to our account. That is what you call amazing grace. Maybe you can think of it this way. What God does for us in the gospel, here's God's provision for our poverty, is God makes his son Jesus, Jesus Christ, his son. He, he makes his son Jesus come down to earth and be treated like a dog so that we dogs could be treated like sons and daughters. That is God's provision for our poverty. This is what God has done to meet us in the mess of our sin and rebellion and wickedness. So let me just try to state this as clearly as I can, and we're going to start landing the plane here. There are two fundamental things that we have to see if we're going to become a Christian or grow and produce fruit as a Christian. First thing is we have to see our spiritual poverty. We have to see that. We can't run from that. We can't deny that. We can't act like that doesn't exist. We've got to see what the Bible says about our spiritual condition before God, that we have no resume to present to God, that we have no like resume of righteous stuff that's going to earn us favor. That Romans 3.23 is correct, that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, that we are all spiritually bankrupt people. We have to see our spiritual poverty before God. But then secondly, we have to see God's provision for our poverty. We have to see both of those, not just one. God is not primarily concerned with just you seeing your sin. He's concerned with you seeing your spiritual poverty so that you will be absolutely amazed and dazzled and overwhelmed by his provision of Jesus for your poverty. So we have to see both our poverty and God's provision. See, Romans 3.23 is connected to Romans 3.24. All has fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Verse 24, and we have been justified by his grace. That we, are, we were this, but now God has made us that. Just as if we had never sinned, we've been justified by Jesus. And we've got to see both of those. If, if we ever lose sight of both of those realities, our spiritual poverty and God's gracious provision, we will never become a Christian on the front end, or we will never grow and produce fruit on the back end. That is the prerequisite. See, the prerequisite for being amazed by grace is seeing just how big your sin is. See, if our sin seems insignificant, grace will always seem small. If, if, our, gra if, if our sin seems like it's not, you know, not that bad, then grace will never seem that good. It's when our sin is seen for what it is that bad that grace actually turns into something that's that good. It's amazing at that point. Do you see the connection? You can't have amazing grace without sin being big and elevated and you seeing it absolutely clearly in your life. They're connected. Seeing our sin leads us to savor grace, be amazed by grace. Maybe you could think of it this way. For us to ever experience grace, for us to have grace break into our life, for us to finally be fully and freely forgiven. Do you know the one thing you need? The one thing you need 
to experience that sort of grace from God, that sort of freedom and forgiveness from God, the one thing you need is nothing. The problem is so few of us have it. See, the problem is so many of us, we approach God with this resume as if our righteous resume is going to earn us grace and favor from God. And as long as you are coming to God with a resume, you will never get grace. It's when you let go of your resume and come to Jesus empty-handed, knowing like this lady that I am spiritually impoverished. It's when we see and know that, that's when we get grace. I love how one author describes this. He says it this way. It's not until she admits I'm a dog under the table that she is fit to be called a child at the table. This is how the gospel of grace works. If we say, I see, Jesus says, nope, you're blind. But if you realize you're blind, Jesus says, okay, now you see. If you say, I'm all right, I, I'm, I'm good. I got a resume here, God. He says, no, you're condemned. But in the moment you say, no, I'm coming empty-handed. I am condemned, spiritually impoverished. He says, all right, I took your condemnation. See, that's how grace works. When we realize we have nothing, that we are spiritually impoverished before God, that's when we get everything from God. That's when we get grace from God. That's when grace breaks into our life. So let me close with the two ways that we can reject Jesus as our Savior. And this applies to everyone in the room. If you came in here this morning and you know you are not a Christian, you know you're not in the family of God, here are the two ways you can reject Jesus as your Savior. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, here are the two ways that functionally today you can be rejecting Jesus as your Savior. Two ways. It goes like this. One you might call superiority, that we are too proud to admit our spiritual poverty. See, this is one of the ways that we can reject Jesus as Savior, is we're just too proud to admit, I am the dog like this lady does, that this is my spiritual rap sheet and it's really bad. There is nothing that I have that's going to earn me anything before God. See, one way that we can reject Jesus as Savior is just to deny that. And can I just say that Jesus reminds people in the family of God over and over throughout the Gospels that you need to be reminded of this, that you have a tendency to be elder brother-ish in Luke 14, 15. You have a tendency, that if you're a believer in here, that you have a tendency to forget that you're, you're spiritually bankrupt, that you are absolutely in need of Jesus. See, when, when you forget that as a Christian, here, here's what it produces. It, it produces really judgmental and critical Christians. That's where that little streak of judgmentalism comes from, is we have taken on this superior posture. Like, no, I'm really not that bad. They're the bad ones. I'm the good ones. Just what the Pharisees did. See, when we get this superiority complex, it makes it impossible for us to forgive people. This is Jesus' point in Luke 18, when he tells this story about two, you know, this man that, that was, um, was in debt to the king. Like, it was like a billion-dollar debt. And the king comes and says, listen, I've forgiven your billion-dollar debt. And then all of a sudden, this guy turns around and he recognizes and sees that person over there has a hundred-dollar debt against him. So, so he's just been forgiven this billion-dollar debt, but now he's holding this, this guy over here who's got a hundred-dollar debt toward him. He's holding that debt against them. And just to say, do you, do you realize why you have a hard time forgiving? It's because you have forgotten the debt you had toward me. You forgot you were spiritually bankrupt 
and I've canceled it for you. You've forgotten that. See, we can take this superiority complex, this I, I, I just a failure to see, too prideful to see just how bad we are before God apart from Jesus. But, but here's the other way we can reject Jesus as our Savior. So the first way is superiority. The second way is inferiority. We can be too prideful to accept God's provision for our spiritual poverty. So in one sense, the, the superiority side, we would say this. When Jesus calls us a dog, we would say this. Jesus, who are you talking to? I am not a dog here. That's superiority. But inferiority goes like this. You're right. I am a dog. And now I'm depressed. Now I'm crushed. Now I can't, you know, now I, I guess for the rest of my life, it's woe is me. Now comes the pity party. Now I can't even breathe. My sin feels so crushing and so big in my life. See, it's one side, superiority says, no, that cannot be me. The other side, inferiority says, that is exactly who I am. And my sin is way too big for grace to cover. Inferiority. And both of them are ways of rejecting Jesus. And I've just like got this sneaky suspicion that in the room today, we have a lot of people who carry the inferiority route, that we are rejecting Jesus in a subtle way that almost seems spiritual. You know, like we hear about our sin and then we're depressed about it. We're circling the toilet bowl in the midst of our repentance. But can I mean, repentance in the Bible is not just intended to produce brokenness in a person. That's one part, but part two of repentance is producing wholeness in a person. It's being broken for our sin and that brokenness leading us to absolute joy in God's provision for our sin, namely the cross of Christ that he has covered our sin with. See, it's not just brokenness, it's also joy and wholeness. I just feel like there's a lot of us that miss that. Like a lot of us need to be reminded, like right now in this moment, Jesus actually died on the cross and rose from the dead. You don't have to sit in the despair of your sin. You don't have to be self-loathing. That the Bible is concerned about you seeing your sin, but it's not mainly concerned about that. It's mainly concerned about you seeing your sin so that you can be absolutely amazed at grace. So I just wonder how many of us fit into this self-loathing, inferiority kind of, th that sort of category. And I want you to listen to how John Newton, writer, amazing grace, you know, slave owner, turned Christian, turned pastor. I want you to listen to how he addresses one of his pastor friends who is in despair over his sin, depressed about his sin, that, that he is the inferiority person. He is looking at his sin and saying, it is way too big for grace to cover. Listen to how John Newton des uh, describes or writes to this person. This is his response to this person depressed about his sin. It'll be on the screen for you and we'll finish with this. You say you are overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, you cannot be too aware of the inward and inbred evils you complain of. Now, Selah on that. He's saying that you, you will never be too aware of how sinful you are. You'll never be too aware of that. But then he goes on to say this. But you may be, indeed you are, improperly controlled and, aff and affected by them. So he's saying you, you cannot be too aware of your sin, but you can be improperly affected and controlled by your sin. He goes on to explain. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then not only express a low opinion of yourself, which is right, that apart from Jesus, we are nothing before God. 
He's saying it's right for you to express a low opinion of yourself, but also you express too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, and that is wrong. He's saying it's perfectly right for you to have a low opinion of yourself because you're a sinful person, but it is absolutely wrong for you to have a low opinion of the person and work of Jesus, God's provision for your sin. He says you complain about sin, but when we examine your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, and pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst sins you complain of. And here's my burden for us today, is not just us seeing our spiritual poverty, but for us to be absolutely amazed at God's provision in His Son, Jesus, for our spiritual poverty. For us to be amazed at how God sends grace to meet us in the worst of the messes of our life. That's what I'm concerned with. Maybe if you sum up the entire sermon, here's what I'm praying for our church family. That we would feel deep in our bones what John Owen felt and said on his deathbed. Sorry, not John Owen, but John Newton. Writer of Amazing Grace. Here's what he said on his deathbed. He's 82 years old and he's dying and he says this. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I, know two, I may not know much else, but I know these two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. That's the point. And may we feel that. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.